Today we are going back to the well, back to the well in Samaria where we were last week, where we left Jesus talking with a woman he had no business talking to. Not only because she was a woman and woman and women uh, culturally were considered inferior to men, not biblically but culturally. She was also a Samaritan, a half-breed, despised. I told our groups on Wednesday night to imagine this conversation taking place in 1965 in Birmingham at a water fountain that said colored over it with a white man asking a black woman for a drink from the water fountain and you would have the sense of a Jewish man asking a Samaritan woman for a drink. It just wasn't done. So she was, she's a woman, she's a Samaritan, and morally she's questionable. She's got a past. She's at this well in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, when no one else is there, really uncharacteristic. Uh, that means she's trying, or implies at least, that she's trying to avoid her own people. So she's not only shunned by, because, of her, because of her biology and because of her ethnicity, but she's even shunned because of her past. And Jesus doesn't care a bit about any of those things because Jesus wants her. And so he pursues her. And what we learned last week was that Jesus offers the real satisfaction. He offers what we discovered is that she's aiming to quench her thirst using men. We're going to read today, starting in verse 16, where she says that she has no husband. And Jesus calls her on it. What we learn is that she was aiming to find satisfaction in the arms of men. And what Jesus, in essence, says to her is, I can even satisfy that. Um, so we're going to pick up in verse. Let's pick up in verse 13, and we'll read through to verse 42. Most of our focus being spent in the latter part. Jesus said to her, "Everyone who drinks of this water in this well will be thirsty again." But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but y'all say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Ma'am, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will y'all worship the Father. Y'all worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, 
and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, somebody brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Don't you say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask for new eyes Eyes to see the wonderful treasure buried here in your word. Lord, and hearts to receive it. Oh, Lord, that all our confidence would be in you. And not in preachers or external obedience or church membership, but our our confidence and our trust and our stay would be in you and in your word and in what you've said. Lord, would you bless Your word now, so that it will be preached faithfully, and so that we would see Jesus and trust him. We pray it in his name. Amen. John Piper, he's a pastor and an author. He's famous for saying this, missions exist because worship doesn't. Think about that. Missions, as in global missions, missions exist Because worship does not. Does that make sense? That really the object for which the church is driving is the worship of God. That when all is said and done and when Jesus returns and this age is over, there will be no more evangelism, there will be no more missions, because at that point all will be worship. 
So missions exist because worship doesn't. And we see that here because what's really at stake in this passage, what's really at stake in Jesus' conversation with this woman is not her moral past. It's not even the fact that she's a sinner. What's really at stake and what we see in this conversation today is that she isn't a worshiper. In fact, because she's not a true worshiper, she has a questionable background, right? So worship is the blazing center of life, right? It's the sun and the solar system. And if it's not there, then everything else is cold and dark. And so Jesus is driving at worship, and not just for this woman, but also for the whole world. God seeks and saves the lost to transform us into worshipers. That's his goal. God seeks and saves the lost to transform us into worshipers. So evangelism and missions and all that, they don't serve an end in and of themselves. The end is worship, what we even are picturing here this morning in our gathering together. We are becoming worshipers of the true God. So let's see how, uh, let's see how this plays out in this conversation. Kind of, kind of follow with me the trajectory of what Jesus is doing as he tunnels down into this woman's life. If you were here last week, he starts with water because they're at a well. That makes sense, right? They're at a well, so he starts with water and thirst. And she thinks he's talking about physical thirst and physical water. But what Jesus is doing is he's saying, no, I have something better. I have, I have something that will quench your deep down thirst, your real thirst. I have living water that will spring up in you to eternal life. So what Jesus is offering this woman actually is life instead of the death she is currently living. But she doesn't quite get it, right? He says, he, he, he makes his offer there in verses 13 and 14, and she still thinks he's talking about water. She says, I'll never thirst again? Well, sir, then give me this water so I don't have to keep coming back to this well and dragging the jar to and from my house. This would be great. She doesn't get it. And that's okay because we don't get it either. And so what Jesus does, and he's here at water, he's here at eternal thirst, what he does is then he goes a step further. He goes for this little soft spot in her heart, the area of her shame. She goes for her, he goes for her relationship. He goes for her personal life. Right? Like a, like a skilled surgeon aiming to remove cancer. He goes in. And he asks for her husband. <coughs> At which point she says, I have no husband. He says, you're right, you don't. You've had five, and we don't, know, we don't know the story. We don't know if they divorced her or if they've died. But we do know that she has continually gone back to that well, or as we learned last week, that broken cistern. And it looks like she's basically given up on marriage altogether, and now she's just living with a man. And Jesus says, you're not even married to him. And so what Jesus is doing is not, he's, he's exposing her need, not to say, straighten up, but to say, I've got water for that. I'm actually the husband you really want, the, the, the love of your life that you've been searching for. So he goes from water to her personal life, pursuing her. And then in verse 
19, it's hard to tell, but it kind of looks like she's deflecting. You know what deflecting is, right? Um, <clears throat> it's what happens in my house when I approach, uh, when I call one of my children on their, uh, on their disobedience, right? When I say, I don't, I don't want to use her name, I don't want to use names, but um, why did you just hit your brother, right? Deflection is what happens next. Well, I didn't really hit him, but, or he was kicking me in the head, so, right? Deflection is what you do when you want to get the spotlight off of you, right? And adults aren't any different than children. We deflect in just more complicated ways. And so it looks like possibly this woman is deflecting. Jesus has hit a soft spot. And so she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Let's talk about worship, the mountain, where we should worship. Let's talk about that. Um, It looks like she's deflecting, but what is beautiful about Jesus is that's exactly where he wants the conversation to go. What he is saying, what he does is, right, what she's trying to do possibly is say, let's not talk about my real issues. Let's talk about the issue of worship. And what Jesus does next, he says, well, that's interesting. Worship is the real issue. It's actually not about the, the reason that you are living the way that you are living is because you are worshiping the way that you're worshiping. So he now takes it to the next level, the core level, which is worship. What is True worship. Let's define that word. In the Bible, the, the imagery of that word worship is kissing the ring. Right? Maybe you're familiar with history or you've watched enough movies or read enough stories that when the king walked by or when the pope walked by or whomever, right, you were to bow the knee and kiss the ring. You were to pay homage. Right? Or... The image there is one of throwing yourself on the ground, prostrating yourself before someone more worthy. And so that word worship captures this image of putting yourself in an inferior, vulnerable position. In worship, you are saying, you or it is greater than me. You are bowing down to someone or something else. A few years ago, probably been more than a few years ago now, um, Madonna, Madonna started, you know Madonna, come on, um, started sporting a t-shirt, right, that said, Jesus is my homeboy. If you don't remember that, it's kind of the rage in Hollywood, Jesus is my homeboy. Well, you can't fall down before a homeboy. You don't bend the knee to a homeboy. You worship Jesus. You have to bend the knee to Jesus. And so worship is this idea of humbling yourself and giving yourself over to someone or something greater. And like I said, in other cultures, they kind of get that, especially if they have a king or a dictator, right? Everybody else bows the knee when the king comes around. We don't get that. That's not a part of our cultural history. We bow the knee to no one. We pay homage to no one, at least not physically. While our knees may not be bending, our hearts are bending all the time. 
We pay homage to lots of people. And we pay homage to lots of things. We bow the knee in worship, most often at the altar of self. Right? So even if our knees aren't bending, our hearts most definitely are. And so not only is worship the real issue in this woman's life, it's also the real issue in my life and your life. What are you worshiping? What are you bowing the knee to? Whose ring are you kissing? She says, our fathers, this is verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. But you, Jews, say that Jerusalem, Mount Zion, is the place to worship. So whose mountain is better? Which is the right place? And Jesus says, it's not about the mountain anymore. It's not about the place anymore. Ma'am, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You, Samaritans, worship what you do not know. And what he means by that is you don't have the law. You don't have God's spoken revelation through the law and the prophets. The Jews have that. And so for the Jews, they understand who they are worshiping and the right way in which to worship. You Samaritans don't. So you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Salvation comes from the Jews. The Messiah is coming from the Jews. Even that being true, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers won't pay attention to a mountain. They're not going to pay attention to a place. What they're going to do is worship the Father in spirit and truth. The days of worrying about the right place are over. It's no longer about where you worship, but who you worship and how. Now bear with me for a little bit as we kind of dig into this. In verses 23 and 24, who do we worship? Jesus says genuine worshipers worship the Father. She was concerned about the religious traditions of her fathers. Jews would have been concerned about the same. Jesus says stop worrying about your fathers and worship the Father, which was not a very common way of talking about God, even for Jews. The word Father to talk about God is only used 15 times in the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, only 15 times does God refer to himself as Father. In the first four books of the New Testament, the first four Gospels, he is called Father over 165 times. Do you think maybe Jesus changes the game a little bit? Jesus changes the way we relate to God. He calls God his Father often, and he encourages his disciples to do the same. That was one of the remarkable things about the early church is they use this word Abba, Father, to talk about God when no one else would. So we worship the Father. How do we approach him? Jesus says God is a spirit, or God is spirit. That means he's, he doesn't have a body like men. He cannot be seen. And so that those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. <clears throat> what does Jesus mean in spirit and truth? Well, first off, in John's gospel, Jesus is the truth. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
And what that means, what it means when Jesus is the truth, it means not only that he opposes what is false, Samaritan worship, but also that he fulfills what has been true in the shadows, Jewish worship. That Jesus now is the focal point for right worship. That if you're going to worship the Father, it has to come through Jesus. That's the true way. That's the right way. Jesus is the truth because Jesus reveals the truth about God to both Jews and Gentiles. And so what that means then for our worship is that has to be Christ-centered, right? When we say that we want to glorify God through worship in spirit and truth, you could replace truth with Jesus because Jesus is talking about himself right here. The truth of God is revealed in Jesus Worship, Christian worship, must be cross-centered. But then there's also in spirit. And what we see in the Bible is that when Jesus returns to heaven, he sends the spirit. And what the spirit does, we just saw it in John 3, he gives new birth. He gives new life. He enables true worship. And so true worship, as opposed to false must involve all three persons of the Trinity. Jesus, as the Son, gains us access to the Father. And we are empowered to worship by the Holy Spirit. And so worship is triune, right? Worship of the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what? Why does all of that matter to us in 2015? Well, because of this point, right, that worship matters. Worship is not just a side issue. See, we are are guilty of thinking that Sunday morning is just kind of a a peripheral part of our lives, like like a hobby. I golf and mow the grass on Saturdays, and I worship on Sundays, right? These things are kind of interchangeable. It's a peripheral issue. And what Jesus is saying is, no, it's actually a central issue. Who you worship and how you worship him affects everything else, even how you mow the grass and play golf. So our our lives are not these segmented compartments of different things we do. Rather, they're like spokes on a wheel with worship as the hub in the center and everything else coming off of that. And so if the hub is not right, if the hub is not genuine, then the rest of the wheel falls apart. We live in a very different day from Jesus. The argument is no longer about place. Now the argument is about our feelings. We, most, of, most of our culture would fully agree with Jesus. Jesus, you're right. It doesn't matter what mountain I worship on. I can worship anywhere. And I can worship God by any name I'd like to. In fact, I don't, I don't even really have to call him God. I can just use another name that suits me because God's so loaded a term. I need something else that makes me kind of warm and fuzzy, right? And what we've done is actually replace God with ourselves. And so we take this to the extreme in the other directions. And in what Jesus is saying in contrast is that the Father is actually seeking genuine worshipers, not people who define worship for themselves, but who worship according to spirit and truth. So if we are not approaching God as our loving Father because of the work of the Son through the power of the Spirit, we're not actually worshiping. John Frame, a 
theologian, says that worship is the work of the people to ascribe glory to God. Let's break that down. Worship is work. That means that there is no there there are there is no passivity in worship. That worship is not a spectator sport. That if we come to worship, we are not here to listen to Jennifer sing or to Matthew play the mandolin. We are not here simply just to listen to me preach. We are actually here to join together to worship God. And if we are not engaged in doing that, we are not actually worshiping. If we're not working, we're not worshiping. Worship is the work of the people to bring glory to God. So what is God's work? What is God doing? The work of God is to gather worshipers. We'll look at this quickly. Let's back up for just a second. Jesus wraps up his conversation with this woman. He tells her about true and genuine worship. And now the woman is getting closer. Now she begins to understand. Verse 25. I know that Messiah is coming and when he comes he will tell us all things. You can tell she's, her now, now she has begun to awaken. She maybe begins to understand who this is that's talking to her. He clearly has some divine insight And so Jesus beautifully reveals himself to her. He says, I am the Messiah that you're looking for. I am the one who will reveal all things. I am the center of true worship. I am your true love. I am the the water that quenches your thirst. And it's just then, at that perfect moment, that the disciples come back and ruin everything. Right? The disciples come back. This is the climax of the conversation. Okay? And they walk up and they are shocked. Why are they shocked? Because Jesus is talking to this woman, which is not done. This is unheard of. Obviously, they're not shocked enough to actually open their mouths. They just wonder. No one said, What do you seek? I wonder if they had asked Jesus, What do you seek? He would have said, I'm seeking worshipers. Because that's what God is in the business of doing. God seeks worshipers. God gathers worshipers. So the woman leaves. She leaves quickly. She leaves her water jar behind. She's got good news to tell her town. And so she runs and she says, come and see. Not the first time we've heard that invitation. The early disciples said the same thing. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Meanwhile, back at the well, the disciples have kind of brushed off their shock and they're trying to get Jesus to eat. And now it's his turn to play the same game with them. It was water with the woman and now it's food with them. They say, you need to eat. He says, I have food you don't know about. And they don't get it. And we wouldn't either. They went to the town to get food. He's like, well, has somebody already brought him something? And he says, no, 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 my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus gets his satisfaction and sustenance from finishing God's work. Deuteronomy 6, 8, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus personifies that. He is that verse. Jesus' desire is to win worshipers. 
and it's more important to him than physical food. And so he tells his disciples, put on your bread, boys. Lift up your eyes. Look at the field. Look at all of these people coming out of this town, coming to us. The harvest is walking right towards us. It's right in front of you. Let's get to work. Let's stop worrying about food and let's worry about spiritual food. Let's do the work God has in front of us. The harvest is now. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. Now, what Jesus means, I'm not a farmer. I, don't, I can't even keep flowers alive in my, in my house in a pot. So um, I'm, I don't have a green thumb. But I do understand this basic principle of farming, that you put a seed in the ground and then you have to wait for it to grow, right? Fruit does not automatically come up out of the ground. But what Jesus is telling his disciples is, and it's actually a reflection of Amos, the prophet Amos. He says, the day is here, but the sowing and the harvesting are happening at the same time. And so let's dig in. Let's get to work. The disciples are laborers. There's one last thing I want to point out. Do you notice what the woman said when she went to town? She said, come and see. Which is, which is the phrase for evangelism. Come and see. Come and see. And she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Do you remember what she said to Jesus when he brought it up? When he asked for her husband, she said, I don't have one. She was ashamed about what she was doing. But look at the way that Jesus has transformed her life. Her shame becomes her story. She runs into town and she says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. These people who loathed her, who shunned her, who did not want anything to do with her, she uses that to invite them to come and see Jesus, to make them curious. She's no longer ashamed. Jesus has brought light to her darkness. And now she wants to bring other people to the light. The woman, once shunned and ashamed of her painful past, now uses it to invite others to see Jesus. And in this way, God gathers worshipers. I want to close with this thought. Verse 23, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. It's popular, maybe a little passe now, probably in our day, to talk about seeker-sensitive worship or seeker-friendly worship. But I suggest that those terms put the spotlight in the wrong place. We are not the seekers. God is the seeker. Right? Jesus is the, is the hound of heaven, pursuing people to win them to Christ. We are not seeking him nearly so much as he is seeking us. He is the one who pursues this woman. He is the one who pursues us. Whether in the wheat fields of Samaria or the peach orchards of Clanton, God is seeking the least and the lost and wants to make them into worshipers. And he is gathering the harvest now. And look at what they call him. 
in verse 42, they say to her, It's no longer because of what you've said we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Not just the Jews, not just the Samaritans, the Savior of the whole world. And he does it the same way for us as he did for them. He peels away those hidden layers of the heart, and he takes our shame, and he brings it into the light, and he brings us into freedom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this interview with this woman, what it tells us about you, what it tells us about ourselves. We rejoice that you are a God who seeks worshipers. And then you transform us into the worshipers we need to be. You bring us in through Jesus and you give us the Spirit so that we can rightly and truly worship you. Father, I pray that we would trust you, that we would believe in the name of Jesus, the one you have sent, and that we would enter into the harvest field ourselves. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.